0: The book today is Bridge at the Edge of the World, Capitalism, the Environment, and Crossing from Crisis to Sustainability by James Gustav Speth. It is an indictment, pure and simple, of modern capitalism. Uh, I think when Gus Speth looked back, uh, when he started writing this book, he remembered a couple of things from his college days, and he talks about them a little bit. One is the Cuban Missile Crisis kind of brought home to Americans that we were at the brink we were looking into the abyss to where we faced the possibility that mankind could destroy the world and over the years we stepped back from the brink we came back to the point where we don't any longer I mean we're we're still afraid of nuclear weapons but we're no longer afraid that the Soviet Union and the United States are going to blow up the world. And I think he sees the crisis with the environment today as an analogy because we are on a path that we're again looking into the abyss. And that if we don't step back from the brink and if we don't take action, we face uh, the destruction of the planet Earth. So that was one thing I think he had on his mind when he started writing this. Another was uh, he had a professor in college named Charles Reich who wrote a book called uh, The Greening of America. If you don't remember the book, you may remember some of the concepts from it. He he proposed the theory of, of the consciousness levels, uh, consciousness, consciousness one, consciousness two, and consciousness three. One, of course, was a day when we were all farmers and bartered economies and you were heavily involved in your life and and providing your sustenance. Then we moved into a technological industrial society in which you became removed from the day-to-day sustenance and you were working at a, a factory or someplace. His idea was we were moving into a period of consciousness three where you would have a more evolved populace to where people would not no longer be all concerned about uh, dollars and and uh, and uh, capitalism and business, but would have a higher level of consciousness. Uh, this was prompted no doubt by my contemporaries of that era. Uh, the counterculture hippies they had various names, but it was a a general feeling that uh, this generation was going to uh, tune in and drop out. They weren't going to be part of this whole uh, madness that we knew of as American capitalism. Ironically, of course, we grew up to be the greediest consumers in the history of the world, uh, turned into yuppies, but that's another story. But Speth feels that there, while that promise of this consciousness three that – that The nature of people would change and that we would become better people, he thinks it's still possible and that it could be done and that that is the only solution to the environmental problems because, as he lays out, there are a lot of things that people are trying that aren't working, and we'll talk a little bit about why. A good bit of the book lays out things I'm sure you've heard about, the lack of uh, clean water and the loss of forests and the loss of farmland and, and loss of biodiversity and all sorts of uh, environmental ills and he makes the point that back in the back in the 70s when the environmental movement really took off in this country uh, you remember your first Earth Day I recall I was in a college classroom and. The professor pointed out the window at these long-haired kids with T-shirts and peace signs and said, there they are, the vanguard of Soviet communism. And, uh, of course, nowadays we're celebrating Earth Day in the elementary school and we have bulletin boards and it's not quite, there aren't any KGB people running around that I'm aware of. So uh, so things have, there have been changes and in the 70s, we, you know, we passed the Clean Air Act, and we passed the Clean Water Act, and, you know, we remember the days when Eastman dumped uh, chemicals in the Holston River, and we had massive fish kills, and we had, there weren't any scrubbers on the coal-fired plants, and, and uh, people dumped sewage in the river with impunity. Well, we're going to stop dumping the sewage any day now, I, I, I think, but we're still doing it. But... Uh, but anyway, the 70s—the the environmental problems were fairly stark. You know, smokestacks, stuff going in the rivers. You know, let's do that. So there was a lot of progress made on that front. And then maybe a lot of us thought, well, okay, it's over. But he makes—Speth uh, makes the point that it's now a global problem. Since you have a global economy, then you have global environmental problems because he sees the greatest threat to the environment is uh, capitalism and since capitalism has replaced communism as the dominant culture around the world then uh, it is causing more and more environmental damage he says that there are there are three reasons that guide modern capitalism growth growth and growth and it's all about more production more growth more production and this inevitably leads to uh, environmental damage. More efficient production has essentially allowed more production, which produces more industrial waste. So species sees that growth is the enemy of the environment. Uh, this is where I would uh, part. Couple. I'm going to insert a few caveats as we go along here. One of them is to me the demise of communism and growth of capitalism around the world has raised standards of living and uh, allowed more people to be free and infant mortality has declined as has the birth rate and I don't think it's all a bad thing that capitalism is taking on around the world. We also know that capitalism in the United States uh, does not produce the kind of environmental damage that it does in China, for instance, where there's no consideration given to industrial waste and what happens to it. But anyway, the basic point is that if you're a corporation and you're practicing capitalism and your your purpose is to make money, the conditions under which your children and grandchildren will live in the environment have no are not factored. They're not a factor there is no element of your thinking or your business plan in which the environmental health of future generations it plays a part and he sees that as as why capitalism is a a uh, threat to the environment he also points out that while we may think that the government is the arbiter or the entity which will control Capitalism and control this uh, production of waste that on the other hand, the government is providing uh, loopholes, subsidies, uh, tax breaks, and regulatory failures which allow the degradation of the environment, of course, this was written beforehand, but oil spills in the Gulf because nobody saw to it that they had a the blower uh, that would stop the oil if the rig blew up. But he points out that with both political parties committed to growth because they need growth to produce more tax revenue and they can't raise taxes so you produce more tax revenue that gives you more money to spend on all the things they want to spend it on so both political parties are are guilty in being wedded to the idea that growth is good growth is to be maximized and the government policies should all be about making capitalism grow which he doesn't think is a very good idea Uh, social justice as he would define it is not uh, given much uh, thought and in fact it's uh, pretty well ignored and given that the conditions today there's only so many items on the political agenda the political agenda has no room on it for environmentalism, and that's uh, that's that's a problem. But how do we go about creating these new people, these consciousness three people, who will take a different attitude toward the economy and the way we should live? Well, he he talks about different ways. He quotes Daniel Moynihan and others about the fact that if you want to change the politics, you have to change the culture. The politics reflect the culture. Therefore, if the the politicians are all about growth and all about ignoring the environment, that's because of the culture that produces them. And if you can change the culture, if you can change the attitudes of people, it will be reflected in the people who are elected to office. So he thinks that you create this change in culture that way you can uh weaken the corporate state uh without violence or revolutionary overthrow. So how do you change the culture? Well, you do it several ways. One he cites is religion. Uh he cites some religious groups who have started to take more of a uh, a stance that uh, we're stewards of the world, we're stewards of the of nature that God gave us and we should not abuse the wonders of, uh, of, the, of the earth. And and they're going to get more involved in environmental issues. So religion can play a major role. I mean, 85% of the people in the world are members of uh, three religions. So uh, you should be able, you should be able, working through religious organizations to get some people to change their mind about their viewpoint toward the earth. Education, if you spend an inordinate amount of time, I would call it indoctrinating youth, but uh, if you if you teach environmental policies in, in elementary school, if you're taking the kids out to, on nature hikes on the weekend, if, you, if you're making them conscious of the glory of the outdoors and, and, and the environment, then as they grow up, they may, unlike uh, all of us back in college in the 70s, they may decide that environmentalism is a good thing and that we ought to support it. Uh, there have been very successful media campaigns that have changed public attitudes, smoking, uh, drunk driving, things that we used to really enjoy, uh, <laughs> are now frowned upon. And while still practiced, not nearly as widespread, and and, and it's no longer considered uh, the cool thing to do. So uh, there are ways in which you can do it, and, and that's one of them. But his feeling is that you have to change the attitude of consumerism to an attitude of the quality of life. And if you concentrate on your quality of life as opposed to what can I buy next, it may slow down some of the uh, uh, pell-mell rush to uh, produce more, produce more, and consume more that we are now are under. This is just an aside, but I, when I was reading some of this, I got to thinking about, you've read stories about how we're fishing out uh, the, the fisheries uh, in our, along the coasts in New England. And I noticed there was a fast food restaurant last year who had a 30 shrimp dinner special. Now, let's set aside for a moment whether anybody ought to eat 30 shrimp and ask ourselves how many of those shrimp went in the trash can but it was i want more we're giving you more and come and have more and come and be a glutton so gluttony and consumerism could be curbed with media campaigns and with education and with some feeling among uh, the religious community that this is a human right or ought to be considered Uh, my problem with uh, a lot of the uh, ideas in this book come down to uh, it assumes a post scarcity civilization. It gets down to we can just fine tune and we can uh, do this and that, and we can bridle capitalism and we can do all sorts of things and you know, there are, now, there are now predictions that we're going to have famine in a good bit of the world in the next couple of years. Commodity prices are through the roof. Uh, uh, corn prices are causing food riots in, uh, in Mexico. The way we've been able to feed the world has been through American farmers and farmers around the world who've had herbicides and pesticides and uh, fertilizer produced by TVA or different or in the old days but what happens if we if we destroy the market what happens if we have these food shortages and we have famine and and we can't get the corn and the the corn is too expensive and don't get me started on how ridiculous it is we burn food to please Iowa farmers they had a vote yesterday in the Senate some even some Republican senators had the sense to vote against tax subsidies for ethanol in which we take corn and when we have people rioting for food in Mexico we're taking corn and we're going to burn it but anyway that's not in the book but I do think we've realized that the indifference that previous generations had toward the natural world is a little horrifying when we think about what we used to do to the earth what we used to do to uh, the countryside uh if you go out today and you look at the coal mines that they shut down back in the 70s they're still yellow boy there's still pollution in the streams there's still the the countryside was raped while knoxville families lived very well and uh and today give money to charitable causes but anyway How do we achieve this new consciousness? How does Speth see the possibility that we will move to this new consciousness uh, uh, thing? And he sees it as the, first of all, you're probably gonna have to have a cataclysmic event. The hope is that this will be a cataclysmic event that will not be final, but it might be enough to wake everybody up to the fact that something needs to be done. The Great Depression was a cataclysmic event and there was an opportunity there, as Speth would see it, to take a different path. Instead, we waited after World War II, and we went right back to growth capitalism, which I think is a good thing, but he didn't. But 9-11 could have been a cataclysmic event that, uh, given the proper leadership, we might have looked at ourselves and... Uh, I believe the president's speech said we should just go to the mall and keep shopping. Meanwhile, we sent all these troops overseas, and we haven't paid for them. Uh, We were just told uh, it was okay. In fact, we cut taxes, so we haven't paid for the wars, and we're spending $2 billion a week in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we have people hungry in this country, and we have needs that we have that aren't being fulfilled, and we're screaming every day about the deficit and the $2 trillion debt and all that because we didn't pay. When we had a cataclysmic event, we shut it off, and we didn't do anything to change our habits and and the way we live. So, uh, he he quotes a guy from a book uh, from 2006, Thomas Homer Dixon, who predicted foreshocks, warnings that might prompt people to start changing their attitudes. Uh, Among them high energy prices, a worldwide financial crisis, climate change. There is climate change, I think we, most of us can agree, whether it's caused by CO2 or sunspots or weather patterns over thousands of years you can argue that if you want to but the idea is that these uh, four shocks will promote the idea that we need to do something and that we need to have some sort of uh, movement to save the environment how can we make the market work for environmentalism rather than against it and again he takes on the fact that the government is in the control of big business both political parties Um, 35,000 lobbyists collect six billion dollars a year to write the laws and that the environmental movement he doesn't really attack a mainstream environmental movement but they don't come off very well in this book if you are if you have an organization, you collect dues, and you hire lobbyists, and you send them to Washington, and that lobbyist is among 35,000 lobbyists, and all the other lobbyists are getting a million dollars, and you're getting 30 grand, you're not gonna be very effective. So his idea is that uh, the, the big business has, the Congress is a wholly owned subsidiary of big business, and that the regulatory agencies are being pressured by a big business. Therefore, uh, you cannot depend on the government to do anything about environmental problems. So what do you do if the government is not going to help you? Well, his idea is that uh, there's an old expression uh, attributed to Tip O'Neill that all politics is local. And his idea is that all environmentalism is local. And what you have to do is form strong community organizations that will create civic environmentalism on the local level and then all of these groups together uh, in every area of, of the United States would become a force for electoral politics grassroots you can elect people who would change things and you would have some control over what happens since it, you have a global economy you have global environmental problems therefore these groups need to be formed all around the world and they you should have citizen initiatives you should have referendums At the local level and that will help you control the agenda and help you stop abuses to the environment uh, But anyway his his basic point is that the system is rigged wealth inequity, equity uh, the influence of on government by uh, big business uh, you have to have system participation. The best way to do that is at the local level. And the bridge to the future is we're at this fork in the road. We've, we're looking into the abyss, and you can decide to go this way, or you can ignore it and, uh, and suffer the consequences. Anybody have a, a discussion topic or question? As a libertarian, I found much about this book, uh, especially his analysis, to be cogent. Uh, his solutions, however, I have some trouble with. Being a devout capitalist, but go ahead.
1: Um, I, I know about a group in New Haven, Connecticut, that's very active and t- has that very philosophy that that um, all politics are local and so, and and is concentrating on their local environment and uh, doing very interesting things, from gardens to hikes to bicycle stuff uh discovering things like we've got our four creeks here that most of us don't know exactly where they are what happened to them like you know first creek second creek anyway do we have anything like this going on in knoxville
0: well it's it's sort of ad hoc You, you will have people get together like to oppose ridgetop development for instance and you'll have people but uh it's sort of a let's all get together around one issue uh There are traditional environmental groups around East Tennessee. Uh, uh, Remember, anybody remember Sockham? I don't know if they're still there. Maybe they're renamed now. Uh, You have uh, Wildlife Federation and and land trusts and things like that. But as far as locally and within the city, I'm not aware of any organized group. It usually is an environmental issue will come up at county commission or city council. And it's usually neighbors. But then maybe other people will come, and they'll argue against the ridgetop development or uh, other uh, runoff issues, that kind of thing. But it's mostly homeowners mad about their property values. <laughs> I wouldn't call it an environmental movement.
1: Hey, Frank, when was that book written?
0: Uh, 2008, I believe. So it's yeah. recent. That, well, that's copyright, but. Yeah,
1: 2008. Yeah, I was curious about that because I think there is – I've seen some movement among some major corporations to go green, so to speak. Um, some in some in Tennessee, Volkswagen, for instance, and um, some of the companies that are really making a, a gr- much greater effort to uh, focus on cleaning the environment and <clears throat> in the workplace – And uh, I was going to say the church, the religious um, aspect of the stewardship or creation has been a really interesting movement to me. And we have seen that here. Um, The the group that has opposing mountaintop mining started actually in a church. And their organization is called LEAF. Um, But it has all been faith-based. And there is a faith-based organization in Tennessee called Inter faith, power, and light, which sounds like a utility, but it's not. It's actually a, a group of faith-based folks who, who want to see a cleaner environment. I think we're seeing the beginning of it. Unfortunately, what's happened is it became very politically divisive, as you well know, and the parties have split. And when that happens, you know, one, each goes to their corner and the politics gets involved in it. But I think here in Tennessee we are beginning to see some movement toward cleaner corporations. I
0: I think we are, and as I mentioned, you know, Eastman's not dumping in the Postman anymore, and we're not uh, – smokestacks are not like they used to be, and and there has been some improvement. Uh, Speth would argue not enough and probably not enough. But uh, if if the major religions start to uh, look at stewardship – of the, war, of the environment as uh, as a, uh, a duty of a Christian or a Jew or Muslim, then that might be one of those game-changing things she talks about.
1: Um, the book ignores what I call the elephant in the room, which is a population worldwide growing exponentially. So we look at food and famine and uh, environment and the whole thing, but if we have... More and more and more and more people how do we take care of that
0: well that's one of my problems with the book as I said I appreciate his analysis and I agree with a lot of his his uh, his, uh, research but you know the Club of Rome predicted back in the 70s that we're going to have famine in the 80s and everybody was going to die but because of technology because of uh, improvements in farming New kinds of wheat and rice that were grown in India. We avoided the famines, and we've we've been, a, been able to feed the world, and there are a lot more people there now than there were. Whether we can keep doing that, I don't know. But what I can understand and I don't understand is if we do dismantle the capitalism that drives farm exports and, and feeding the world, what will replace it? If they go back to subsistence given the growth in population if they go back to subsistence farming now i love subsistence farming my neighbors and i we do it you know we have gardens and grass fed beef and all these wonderful things you get over here at the farmers market you know we've got that i live in the country but can you feed the world that way and and that's that's the question to me that's not answered
2: When you first started speaking, you were mentioning another world crisis, and that was about the nuclear, possible nuclear destruction of the world. I started thinking that way, too, after I read the book and started thinking, you know, this is such a a crisis. And at that time, there was an international symbol. The atomic scientists used to put out a clock that would show how close we were to Armageddon, and the hands of the clock would sometimes be at... A quarter to midnight or 10 to midnight, depending on how you know difficult things were getting. So I, I would propose that we need an international symbol now for this crisis, and the symbol could possibly be a three-dimensional representation of the Earth showing different places where there's crises, like Fukushima or the Tennessee fly ash TVA fly ash spill or the Deepwater Horizon. Plus also other areas where there's maybe been, you know, positive step forwards, like major acquisitions of land for uh, land trusts or or something like that. You know, it could be online. Yeah. Well,
0: Tennessee, oddly enough, (laughs) I love it here. I've been here 30 years, but... Uh, you, you may not realize that we have done a good bit here in the state. Uh, Governor Bresson, to his credit, has been bringing in green industries. Uh, we've, we've purchased a lot more land up on the Cumberland Plateau for that will be set aside for uh, preservation. We've had governors who've been helping to cut down, at least, cut down the pollution of the Pigeon River by a paper mill over in, in, the, in the Carolinas. And and we, we have more trees in Tennessee today than were here when the first settlers arrived. We have millions of acres of trees. And I know if your tree in your yard gets cut down, it's it's a tragedy, but if you clear cut forty acres in the midst of one point six million acres, it's not quite as big a tragedy. But but anyway, uh we've done a lot in Tennessee to preserve wildlife, to preserve uh open space. And to stop pollution now, Susan brings up mountaintop mining. Of course, mining in Tennessee is regulated by the federal government. When we realized that the state of Tennessee was doing nothing to prevent the rape of the countryside, so it was turned over to the federal government. So uh, the state can, of course, enforce environmental regulation, but the federal government really has uh, the province to regulate uh, strip mining in Tennessee. Mr. Cagle, I uh, read the blurb in the Metro Pulse announcing the event today, uh-huh. and I was interested in a sentence near the end that said that the author believed that the solution to our environmental crisis lies in changing human nature. Yeah. I, and I have two questions.
3: Is that a reasonable conclusion that you came across in your reading of the book?
0: Well, as I discussed for several pages, uh, he talks about you have to change the culture if you're going to change the politics. And you do that through religion, education, media campaigns, and you change people's attitudes instead of being all about consumerism. They're all about the quality of life. And that that brings about a change in our outlook toward the environment. Okay, so it's not human nature that he wants to change. Well, if if it's if it's human nature to want more and more and more of everything, and you get people to think, well, maybe this is enough, and I can be happy, and I don't have to have a new car, and I don't have to have a swimming pool. I don't know. I, to me, that you've changed human nature in that you have changed people's attitude toward the way they live, the way they look at the world. So, Thank you. Not that they won't sin anymore. <laughs>
3: I love to travel. And in some of the countries, especially in Scandinavia, I find that the society is so interconnected one human being with the next over there. They don't have the problems we have. Everything is neat and clean, there is no graffiti. They live longer than us by about three years, yet they can afford medical care for everybody. In the library here, I had a DVD, which I recommend, uh, Health Care Around the World. One nation did not have good health care, or they felt they did not. First thing they did was to see how health care operated in all the advanced nations of this planet. This country was Taiwan, and they took the best of each country and made a health care system based on it we, can, we will never uh, socially, uh, culturally accept that something can be better in another country. All we've got to go there is look and copy it, bring it back here. It is not allowed in this country.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, as far as Europe is concerned, I think you could certainly make the argument that Sweden is an example that uh, Mr. Speth talks about. If you have a culture in which graffiti is is a terrible thing and in which uh the government is uh, uh involved in in healthcare and all these other areas i mean that is uh, the culture of that country and it is uh it has grown up over you know decades one thing one problem i have with uh, with comparisons with european countries uh, for instance in england well gas is 6 dollars a gallon yeah and you can drive across the whole damn country in half a day if you live in texas what are you supposed to do and you can take all the Scandinavian countries and put them in Texas. So uh, if you have a homogeneous population in a small area, you can certainly do a lot more than you can with a nation of 350 million people in 50 states and all sorts of uh, races and creeds and colors from all over the world. It's, it's pretty hard to get one culture and to move it in the direction you want it to go. <laughs> That's why you get so pessimistic and write books like this. <laughs>
4: Mr. Cagle, mm-hmm. I, I came in uh, 30 minutes late, so it was kind of like jumping on the caboose of the train that was already out of the station. But I took a quick note uh, and wrote down food, human nature, and culture. You posed that question, and we left it kind of hovering out, out uh, about um, if, indeed, the world can be fed through uh, subsistence farming. I, I would venture to say yes, adamantly yes, that that's the only option to feed the world is to reconnect with with our agrarian value system. I'm, uh, one of my heroes is a gentleman who lives one state away from us named Wendell Berry and I would urge anyone who uh, has the time or the interest to uh, approach some of his works he wrote a book called The Unsettling of America uh, wrote it three decades ago and it is profoundly relevant for this day and age and he also uh, there's a compilation of his uh, essays called the art of the commonplace it's the agrarian values of of Wendell Berry if if we uh, allow ourselves to believe that corporations can feed the world that puts us on a slippery slope and eventually we one of the things on that slippery slope is that food becomes militarized food is seen as a a site for manipulation as far as international foreign policy goes?
0: Well, uh, I mean, as I said, I live on a farm and I love subsistence farming and I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, I don't know how you people downtown plan to live uh, when you can't go to the grocery store and you have to grow your own food. And maybe we have a, well, the next mayor may have a plan to where everybody can have a garden in their yard and a cow in the back and milk their own cow and and which we do and we love it and it's fine but it gets a little bit of a problem when you're talking about uh, you know cities and nations and and being able to keep people alive in a city with 30 million people in it in China uh, so uh, it's uh, farm production I hate it and I think it ought to be regulated more and I think there are real problems with what's happening with our food supply but on the other hand I don't know what you can replace factory farming with They will feed the population and do it in in an economical way.
5: It's tempting to pick up on this theme, but there was something else I wanted to talk about. I read Speth's book at the same time that I read another book by a sociologist named Xavier D'Souza Briggs, and I apologize for not remembering the title of the book. It was interesting to read them both at the same time because they're dealing with similar issues in very different ways. And Briggs is looking at kind of an answer to one of the questions earlier, what is actually happening in communities to address some of these um, issues we're confronting? And there's a a formulation he came up with that has stayed with me for years now, and I've been using it in my own thinking and my own work with organizations. And he says, what if we look at the difference between interests and values? And he looks at organizations that have come together over interests, like the organizations Mr. Cagle mentioned, Ridgetop Development or... Greenways, or, you know, whatever. And then he looks at groups that have come together over values. And the groups that have come together over values have been able to address a whole host of issues, whereas the groups that have come together over interests are working on that issue. And so I, I want to out And put they fall that
0: apart there. after the issue goes away.
5: Right. Yeah. And, and so along those lines, I also think that um, another in- useful formulation is the difference between individuals and the collective or the community. And so, even when we think about what is happening in Knoxville or what is happening in the state of Tennessee or what is happening in the United States, we're accepting these um, institutional and state boundaries when we're part of a whole system. And so, as you pointed out, with what happens with corn in the US has an effect on what happens to food prices elsewhere in the world.
0: When they burn corn in Iowa, you have food prices routes in uh, Mexico. Exactly. it's It's all interrelated. It's a global economy. It's a global environment.
5: Exactly. And so when we're thinking about what the possible solutions may be, I think it's important to, of course, consider what can we do locally, but also how that is part of a larger system. And back to the interests versus values formula, if it's a value-based activity, you might, I I think we're more likely to be successful in finding allies to work with across those national and institutional boundaries. I've been involved with an international project for about six years that's looking at the notion of human responsibility. And what we have discovered is that there is a universal value of human responsibility. It's different in different cultures, what you're responsible for, but every culture has a notion of human responsibility. And that, again, fits this, the difference between interests and values and helps us overcome some of the cultural differences that we think, we assume, will get in the way of our addressing any of these problems.
0: The uh, special argument it would be that if every community had its own organization who was concerned and, and, and taking care of business, then the problem would be solved. Uh, you, you would naturally... Associate with similar groups in other communities and other states and around the world. And if you had the ability to organize uh, citizen initiatives and referenda, you could get some control over the political process, which he says is now corrupted to the point that both parties are owned by uh, capitalism. And, 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 and it's all the only policy that the federal government is pursuing these days is growth. All anybody wants to talk about is getting out of the recession, more growth, more growth, more growth, and he says that all this growth comes at the expense of the environment, so he points to Japan, which everybody considers a an economic basket case uh, they 've had virtually no growth for twenty years uh, they will They will pay you to take out a loan in Japan. <laughs> they've had deflation and all that. But no one thinks that Japan is a bad place to live or that it's not a thriving economy. Uh, Now, China recently passed it, but up until recently, Japan was the second uh, largest economy in the world after the United States. And yet they have not had any growth for 20 years. And Speth would say, that's wonderful. Now, in the United States, we don't believe that. We think that if you don't have growth, you don't have you don't have more tax revenue, you can't spend more money on whatever you're going to spend it on. And you can't send $2 billion to the Middle East to fight a war. There
2: was a university professor about 100 years ago called Scott Nearing, and he's written a book called Living the Good Life. He actually was an advocate trying to stop child labor. And since universities were invested in child labor, he was driven out of a couple of universities. But in his book, he describes his own lifestyle, which he adopted, which was growing most of his own food. He had a cash crop of maple syrup in Vermont, and then he moved to Maine afterwards. He describes a pretty nice lifestyle, actually, independent of a lot of the abuses that Speth is describing. Uh, it's not really subsistence, uh but it's not um consumerist either. Well I have
0: a I have a I have Walden Pond on my farm as a matter of fact, but uh I don't live like Henry David Thoreau. It's uh I go to Food City, I'm sorry. Because uh even though I've lost forty five pounds, um, subsistence farming is not all I need to to get by. So anybody mm-hmm. else? Enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.